Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, as pandemic health guidelines are loosened, if there's one place folks are surely glad is on the way back to normal, it's houses of worship. We have used public health professionals who are members of our congregation at the highest level who have helped us sort of find our way through. Bishop Robert Wright of the Episcopal Diocese joins me. Also, Valdosta State University political science professor Bernard Thomas talking about Georgia's new controversial voting law and why it may not change election outcomes for now. And the city of Buckhead. Yes, no, a conversation with former longtime state representative Ed Lindsay, co-founder of the Committee for United Atlanta. They're opposed to the idea of Buckhead becoming a city. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, this from our WABE newsroom. Raphael Bostic, president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve, says having more local lenders can help address racial discrimination in the small business sector. Bostic says minorities often have trouble accessing startup capital from larger financial institutions who may not be familiar with their communities. What does risk look like uh, in terms of a business model, in terms of the community that people operate in? And, you know, is there that equivalence so that communities that are uh, more minority, that have the exact same characteristics, do they get perceived as being higher risk? which then in turn means that they're going to get less capital. The comments came during an ongoing series of forums held by the Federal Reserve discussing racism and the economy. Finally, the Atlanta Hawks are moving on to round two of the NBA playoffs. That's after the team blew out the Knicks in New York last night, 103-89. to Trey Young did what he does best, 36 points and nine assists. The Hawks now face the Philadelphia 76ers in a best-of-seven series to see who then advances to the Eastern Conference Finals. Wow, can you believe that? The first game in the series will be in Philadelphia. No word yet on what day the series begins. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Voting rights groups, civil rights groups, and the ACLU have all come together against the legislation signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp earlier this year. Of course, it was Senate Bill 202. The law, from their viewpoint, disenfranchises minority voters by requiring additional voting identification for early voting, places restrictions on advanced and weekend voting, limits drop boxes, and prohibits Georgia counties from accepting grant funding, among other changes. And lawsuits have been filed. But supporters of the law say it would prevent voter fraud and ensure voter confidence. Governor Brian Kemp has repeatedly said of the law, it's easier to vote and harder to cheat. Dr. Bernard Thomas is an associate professor of political science at Valdosta State University, and he recently wrote a piece that was published in The Conversation. That's an independent nonprofit news organization about Georgia's new controversial voting law. And while he believes the law may not change election outcomes... For now, the title, Georgia Voter Suppression Efforts May Not Change Election Results Much. Professor Thomas joins me now. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. You have extensive research in political parties, electoral systems, and research methodology. And I'm curious, though, what do you make of the number of state legislatures that have already passed more than 20 laws this year alone? Well, let's begin by saying that that the entire intent of the law, at least one of the intentions, is in fact voter suppression. There is, there's no doubt about the fact that the idea behind it or the goal behind it is in order to keep people who would uh, support the Democratic Party to be less likely to vote. 
So the idea is to increase the cost of voting, making it harder and hoping that it would be enough in order to to shave off votes in order to swing elections. In other words, right now, in all the states that you look, at least the main states you're looking at, Mm -hmm. these are states that are taking lots of different steps to try to protect their position, their control over it. And that control looks like it's slowly slipping away. And so they're taking various steps. Probably the most famous and effective is gerrymandering, but also includes voter suppression. I don't think you can look at these laws and interpret them any other way. Mm -hmm. They're so kind of obvious, uh, maybe not as blatant as other types of voter suppression laws, but it's obvious because I don't see how you could find any other explanation for them other than them being voter suppression. The other thing is it's also intended, it seems to be a signal to uh, Trump supporters that, that, you know, they're, they're going along with, what is now commonly and correctly referred to as the big lie that Donald Trump had actually won the election and that now somehow they're going to fix things so that this doesn't happen again. So these are basically the two reasons for it. Um, And so this is a serious matter. It's that the voting should be easy uh, and, and, States, some states are making it so that it's not so easy for certain groups in the population. And we should note, because we've been checking in with the Brennan Center for Justice in New York, and overall, lawmakers have introduced at least, listen to this number, 389 what they call restrictive bills in 48 states this year during legislative sessions, which includes either pre-filed or carried over. And the Brennan Center professor uses 2011 as sort of this benchmark for the last time this wave of these restrictive laws were enacted. Of course, that came right after the 2010 midterm elections, which were disastrous results for the Democrats in the state houses. Going back to that time, you see the same similarities in terms of why Republican, and these are Republican-led state houses, are doing this. There are some similarities there because of who was elected in the previous presidential election. Yes. I mean, that's a that's a big part of it. I mean, the a lot of this was set off from from uh, Obama winning the presidency. 2010 wound up being a kind of a disastrous year for the Democrats. But this is also part of a long term strategy within the Republican Party, the kind of the Karl Rove strategy of 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 doing any steps possible in order to win power. And so and even that you can trace it back to to Newt Gingrich. Uh, lots of steps in order to and, and taking steps that the Democrats were not even aware that was going on. It was it's not that it's any more clever than anything the Democrats did. It's just going farther than than anyone would have expected. So what you're seeing is a long term pattern of the Republicans taking steps that would uh, tilt elections in their favor. I mean, if we were, were talking about other aspects of this, we'd, you'd see that that the elections are severely biased in the Republican Party favor. And when I say bias, we, we mean this in the very statistical sense. The Republicans can win all kinds of levels of office with fewer votes than Democrats. Democrats actually have to outperform Republicans consistently and repeatedly in order in order to win. Some of that just happens. Some of it's just that's demographics, but some of it's by design. So so it's, it's a, part of what's going on, as you're saying, is it's is a reaction to 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 Obama having won the presidency, but but it's also part of a long term strategy that's going on. So we're kind of seeing with these 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 new voter laws yet another step in the same direction. In dissecting Georgia's new voting law, and I know that you have read through it, and there's quite a bit packed into it. But you write, based on your research, that these provisions, and I'm going to quote you here, may not change election results much, if at all. So someone listening says, well, Professor, you have laid it out. This is your area of expertise. You've laid it out how this pattern has unfolded. But you say, well, slow down. It may not change election results much. So I'm going to allow you to take that further. 
Okay, well, one way of looking at it is that there are different kinds of voter suppression laws. And, and we can distinguish, let's say, between, between two major types. One of them you could see as banning voters. In other words, they're the kind of laws that say, if you're in this particular group, you can't vote. You know, the old grandfather uh, clauses are examples of this. And then what they have around the country, the, the felon laws, you get picked up for something minor at some point, but then next thing you know, you can't vote for the rest of your life. These, these are, this is one category. And there's a little bit of that in these laws in the, in the current phases of things. But the major things that we're seeing is that the, these voting laws are trying to increase what we're calling the cost of voting. They're making voting more difficult. So in other words, now, you know, you have to go out and get an ID if you don't have one, if you want to vote. You have to put extra effort if you want to do an absentee ballot, if you're even allowed to do an absentee ballot. The voting polling places, hours are restricted. It's harder to get to a drop box. And of course, everyone's personal favorite from Georgia, no one's allowed to hand you uh, water if you happen to be standing in line for hours on end. Now, again, how what possible point could this have other than to make voting more difficult? As I see the research on this showing, and I think I do think it's pretty clear, is that there's probably some amount of effect of increasing the cost for voting, but not as much as one would imagine. That voters tend to be resilient, especially in bigger races like presidential races. So what'll happen is uh, that you increase, you make it harder for them. Okay, instead of uh, waiting 15 minutes, you wait for three hours. Now, I'll be clear, I've never waited for more than maybe 15 minutes to vote. But as we well know, you know, in Atlanta, other places, it's not uncommon for now these days for people to wait for hours and end. And as it turns out, lots and lots of voters wait for hours on end. What happens is it turns out that these cost of voting uh, measures, from what we can tell statistically, have a small impact, but they're not a huge impact. They have, they, they shave off. The most that they do is they shave off some votes. And, and what I found really interesting about this is, is that is watching many political scientists who are very good statisticians having to put real effort into trying to measure what the impact of these things are. To give a comparison, nobody has to have good statistics to figure out the impact of gerrymandering right now. Well, but on this... We, well, what we, metrics do you use then? Because someone says, okay, well, Professor, let's go back then to that 2011, to the last wave of restrictive voting laws. Have folks like you been able to assess and what metrics did you use to see if it indeed changed any election results? Is it just well, simple as saying, well, Democrats didn't win this and Republicans won that? Or is it a little bit more involved? A little bit more. I mean, I think that in terms of those who are doing this part of the research, um, one of the most interesting things is where they're, where they're decided to start just simply adding up the costs. They refer to it as the cost of elections. And once you add it all up, then they started finding, okay, there's some amount of results in terms of turnout. So we're not even, even talking now about elections being overturned. We're talking about some shaving off of, of turnout. So there is some small amount of impact of, of these kinds of laws. Now, here's the interesting thing about it, or one of the ways of looking at this, and that is, why is it that they're producing voter suppression laws that are not having all that much of an impact? And the answer is, it's probably the only choice that they have at the moment. Because if you go back to, to the Jim Crow era, where you had these kind of over-the-top um, uh, voter suppression laws, and people were basically accepting it, then what happened is with the challenge by the civil rights movement, what they accomplished was to undermine the legitimacy of these type of voting uh, suppression laws. So they made it so that it started becoming much harder to get away with it. And because it's harder to get away with it, what they're doing then is they're trying to find the sneakiest ways possible they can to get away with creating voter suppression. It turns out that sneaky approach 
is not nearly as effective as kind of over the top type of, of voter suppression. And by the way, this is also why the reaction of, 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 of voting rights groups and the Democratic Party where is, is so important because that negative reaction is exactly what keeps these voter suppression laws from being effective. If they take steps like changing the hours of, of polling places and then there's wide outrage, it makes it much harder to do something much more serious that could really uh, affect voting outcome. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Bernard Thomas, Associate Professor of Political Science at Valdosta State University. And we're talking about Georgia's most recent voter law, controversial voter law signed by Governor Brian Kemp earlier this year. I want to talk about something else that you wrote in your piece. You write, quote, permitting most citizens to vote by absentee ballot does not give either party an electoral advantage. Now, even though we know here in Georgia, early voting and absentee ballot voting weighed heavily in the Democrats' favor, Someone reading that may say, well, is that not an indicator of one party with an electoral advantage, particularly if, for example, well, here in Georgia, Biden won? Um, I think it gave absentee ballots gave an advantage to Democrats in this last election during the pandemic. That's so. In other words, the long term impact of absentee ballots don't seem to be there. They don't seem to produce a lot of impact at all. And to the degree that they help uh, turnouts, the long-term trend is it doesn't seem to be that big of a benefit for, for the Democratic Party. I mean, that, I think the thing with Georgia, again, is, is, is supporters of the Democratic Party were much more nervous about going and standing in long lines and especially inside of buildings. And so they, they shifted to absentee ballot. Now, you, it could be we don't know what the future will bring. It could be now that the Democrats have have tried it and have said, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. I don't ever want to wait to, to vote again. I think I'll mail it in from now on. It could be in the future that it does. So but now with something, that. but Professor, now with something like if your state is ending no excuse absentee ballot, then wouldn't that also couldn't that also play out? It could, but but uh, some of the best research on this is is showing that it doesn't seem to have uh, that much of an impact. And again, most of this that that was done uh, has w- occurred before this last election. So now, again, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be absentee ballot or absentee voting. To me, it makes complete sense. Uh, there's there's no evidence of voter fraud. This is this is an imagined problem. I mean, you always have to be concerned about groups that are, are trying to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist, because that usually means they're trying to do something else. Uh, so, so it seems to me that, you know, to me, it seems that voting should be absolutely as easy as possible. But because of, you know, th- there's, there's a reverse version of this too, which is kind of interesting, which is that making voting easy also doesn't necessarily increase voter turnout either. You know, we had thought back in the 90s that we we do motor voter where people can register much easier than they used to. And a number of other things to make things easier would increase turnout levels. And they actually didn't. So this this kind of goes both ways uh, on this issue. Professor, before we end our conversation, I do want to talk about because you brought it up redistricting and how that leads to gerrymandering. Folks, that- uh, can I make one quick point though before before we do that? Then that's that. As if my point is right now that that it's unlikely to have have an impact. Um, there's an opposite side to this that if voter suppression did get more severe and serious, then that starts becoming a much different uh, ball game. That that if you had voter suppression laws that actually were effective, that actually kept people off of from showing up to the polls. You start shaving off 1%, 2%, 3% of the vote. At that point, you could start seeing a, a cascade of elections going to the Republican side that they wouldn't have won otherwise. So in other words, my research doesn't say voter suppression laws don't matter. I'm saying voter suppression laws at the moment don't mm-hmm. matter. 
But if they found ways of doing things like, let's say, what Florida did, where they, they threw a bunch of people off the, the uh, voting rolls in, in 2000, okay, then you could have a devastating effect. So it's like a curve. Right now, I think based on what I'm seeing, we are at the very much at the low end of the curve where, where it's not an immediate threat. But the threat is if they take steps that are, are more severe, more serious, then what you could have are, are election, really serious damage to the American, uh, to American democracy, which is why these laws have to be fought now while they're still weak. So to keep them from actually being uh, much more dangerous. Okay, thank you on that. Let's talk about then redistricting and leading and that leading to gerrymandering. You've done extensive research in that. What do you make of how these laws and what the approach is from these Republican-led state houses? Could we see that here too? I, I think you should expect a significant amount of, of gerrymandering uh, in both Democratic and Republican-controlled states. I think my guess is it's going to get even worse than it has been before. And the reason is because it's kind of an ex- escalating war. And, and on top of that, the Supreme Court has made clear that they have no intention of doing anything about it. And so you would imagine it. Obviously, the other factor is, is also just where people live. Democrats now live much more in, in, uh, concentrated in urban areas. So it makes it a lot easier also to gerrymander them. But if I could swing this back to voter suppression, here becomes another thing that's and an interesting aside to this, that voter suppression actually uh, and gerrymandering work against each other. In other words, the more you gerrymander the districts, the less voter suppression will work in them. And the reason is, and we'll, we'll take the case of Republican, a Republican-controlled state. If a Republican-controlled state is gerrymandering, what they're doing is they're packing as many Democrats as they can into a small number of districts. That makes the margin of victory high. The Democrats start winning by 60%, 70%, whatever you're not going to shave off enough votes in order to to even win those districts. So what that means is that the only places where where voter suppression might work in Georgia are the statewide races. And the reason why it's gonna be hard to make it work in the statewide races, besides it being a larger population, uh, is that these are the high exposure heavily focused on races where people are more likely to show up regardless. I fully expect the next uh, gubernatorial election to be very high stakes and very intense in Georgia. I think the next presidential election will be high stakes. And so what that suggests is that these other factors are going to overwhelm anything that that they're producing right now in terms of gerrymandering. Yes, 2022 will definitely be, as you put it, high stakes election year. Good conversation. Dr. Bernard Thomas is an associate professor of political science at Valdosta State University. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed it very much, too. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. 
In 2005, when Sandy Springs became Georgia's newest city at the time, it was considered historic. Why? It was the first new city in Fulton County in over 100 years. Many point to that as the beginning of the region's cityhood movement. In fact, between 2005 and 2015, eight unincorporated neighborhoods in Fulton, Gwinnett, and DeKalb, they all voted to form their own cities. The reasons behind why a community wants to become its own city vary, and depending on whom you ask, and when you ask them, you'll get different answers. Buckhead, an Atlanta affluent neighborhood where, according to Realtor.com, the average medium home price is $600,000. There's already been an exploratory committee to assess Buckhead succeeding from the city of Atlanta. One reason? The city's increase in violent crime. But there's also a group opposed to the Buckhead City movement. Former longtime state representative Ed Lindsay co-founded the Committee for United Atlanta, and he joins me now. Ed Lindsay, welcome to the program. It's been some time. Good to see you again. Well, thank you. Good to see you again. Let's start here. Your group is opposed to Buckhead becoming a city. Lay out for our listeners through your lens why that is problematic. Well, first thing you need to understand is that it, there's an enormous difference between simply creating a city out of an unincorporated area and carving up an existing city. Mm-hmm. Uh, the complicated procedures that take place in the legislature, the difference I would sort of equate to simple math versus calculus mm-hmm. in terms of the difficulty. You not only have to get a cityhood bill passed, you first you have to get a bill passed that does something called de-annexation. In other words, uh, take certain parts out of the city and that needs to take place first. Mm-hmm. That's what's called local legislation. Mm-hmm. And local legislation requires a majority of the local delegation to agree to it before it can happen. And quite frankly, there's no one representing Buckhead or the city of Atlanta uh, that has signed on to this mm-hmm. idea. And there's only been two folks within the Fulton delegation who signed on to it out of, I believe, 18 different members. So uh, the hurdle to pass it would be extremely high. And But even if somehow they were able to get it passed, you then have some very serious questions that this group simply has not addressed. What's going to happen, for instance, to our city school? The schools are owned by the Atlanta public school system. But if you de-annex from the city of Atlanta, those students are no longer in the APS footprint. So what happens to them? Where do they go to school? That's a question that this organization has not answered. You then have uh, additional questions, for instance, about uh, what to do with the city parks that are located in Buckhead. Mm -hmm. How do you acquire them? How much are you going to have to pay for them? What are you going to do about uh, fire service and how that uh, those buildings are going to be purchased and paid for. You've got the existing debt of the city of Atlanta. Like in any divorce, uh, you can't simply walk away from, from the debt uh, that already exists. And there is approximately, I did a, a look at this yesterday, of about $588 million in bond debt that's basically being secured, rather, by property taxes. I take it you've, you've laid this out, you've had conversations well, with folks on that side. What has been their response? So far, silence on these issues. They simply have not addressed them yet. They simply say, well, it's, it's going to be easy. We want a divorce and we want to move on. Those are just some of the issues that have not been addressed by this organization. But there are others as well that I think are equally important. For instance, they say, well, we just want to vote. Well, that's not quite true because they've made it very clear that they don't intend for every uh, neighborhood in Buckhead to be part of this Buckhead city. So not only are they looking to divide the city of Atlanta, but they're also going to end up dividing up uh, portions of Buckhead when they decide what neighborhoods will be in the proposed city and what neighborhoods will not be. So you have that issue. Uh, And, you know, the the biggest issue, and and you touched on it at the very beginning, Rose, uh, is, uh, is crime. Uh, that's what's that's what's driving a, a lot of these concerns, and it's and it's very legitimate concern for uh, all of us in Buckhead, and quite frankly, all of us in the city of Atlanta and Metro Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, this uh, proposal, however, won't do anything about crime in our area. You can't build a moat or a wall around this proposed Buckhead city. And Ed, let's be clear: you and I have had conversations before when you were in the General Assembly, mm-hmm. there are other optics at play here. And whether folks want to talk about it or not, 
class, race, or intertwine here? Because it leads to this perception of what's behind this Buckhead cityhood movement. And when you talked about how they even want to carve up different parts of Buckhead, can you understand? And I know that you are on the side of not becoming a city, but the perception of it, how it looks, because no one is faulting Buckhead for being affluent, but the perception that it, it does lead to the rest of, of the city. that You all want to carve something out in your little affluent area. Well, that, that, that's exactly right, Rose. Uh, perception is important here. I'm not questioning the motives of the folks who are pushing for this, uh, but, I, but you cannot get away from the, the obvious optics and perception that exist here. And, all, and by pushing for this movement, you're only making it more difficult for those of us in the Buckhead community to be able to build coalitions with our brothers and sisters uh, in the rest of the city to address these very serious issues. Crime is, is something that's, that's very troubling to everyone in Buckhead, but everyone, not just Buckhead, but the city of Atlanta. Uh, and, and so is the quality of services. So are so many other things that are need to be addressed by, by trying to say, well, we want to go our own separate way. You make it more difficult for us to build the needed coalitions to make the changes that are so critically important. So, Ed, what are you all with the, the Committee for United Atlanta? How are you all in addressing the concerns if there's been silence on the other end? Do you all have support from specific groups, maybe the business community, the Buckhead community, maybe the faith community? Who's at the core of your base? Or is it just a coalition of a lot of folks here? Uh, it's a coalition of a lot of folks uh, from all the different uh, aspects that you just mentioned. We've got folks from the business community that are deeply concerned about it. We have folks from the different neighborhood associations that are deeply concerned about it. We've got folks from the faith community that have reached out to us. And we've got just plain old faction folks, you know, have lived in Buckhead for all their lives or large parts of their lives. And they want to continue to see our city progress uh, rather than get divided up. Let's talk procedural steps here, because you, as you just mentioned, you were in the General Assembly mm-hmm. when Sandy Springs became a city. You know how difficult it is to successfully make the case for cityhood to state lawmakers. Let's sort of get back to sort of the brass tacks here, in that every city that you, that you mentioned at the beginning of this show had one thing in common. They had representatives and senators from that area Mm-hmm. Uh, that were fighting to, to, to create the city. Uh, Stanley Springs had Joe Wilkinson and Wendell Willard. Uh, Johns Creek and Milton had uh, representatives uh, Jan Jones and Mark Burkholt. Uh, Dunwoody had Fred Millar, senator mm-hmm. from that area. Um, Brookhaven had Mike Jacobs. There's no one from Buckhead in the legislature fighting for this. And be candid, you have to spend a lot of political capital to get a city passed because it's very complicated for the reasons I just sort of laid, laid out for it. Even, even when it's just an incorporation and you're not trying to carve up an existing city, it takes a lot of political capital being expended by that senator or legislator from that area to get it done. And usually takes more than one year, usually takes two or three years to get it done. Mm-hmm. And when the other side talks about, well, not only crime, but there are services that they feel they're not getting, but as being a large tax base, that their money goes to, and I've heard this, their money goes to other parts of the city. What do you make of that? And what services are folks in Buckhead not getting? Well, there are some legitimate concerns about services in terms of the responsiveness, in terms of zoning requests, and in terms of the quality of the sanitation services taking place. But guess what? Once again, that's not a problem exclusive to Buckhead. Sanitation. That's a problem that, that I hear from my friends in all the other parts of the yeah. city of Atlanta, too. So that's part of the, the dialogue that our group wants to demand that the candidates running this November address. You know, what are the quality, you know, you know, are the quality of services that all of us should be entitled to, regardless of where we live in the city of Atlanta? Are we getting that quality of service given how much we are all and the fact of the matter is, we're not. I mean, if you talk to folks throughout the city of Atlanta, they feel like the quality of services in terms of the responsiveness of City Hall when they, uh, when they reach out to City Hall with a need uh, is, is not being addressed properly. You've mentioned zoning, sanitation. Anything else, Ed? Uh, zoning, sanitation, um, 
you know, across the board, what I keep hearing from folks is, is that, you know, when it comes to trying to reach out to City Hall because of whether or not a, a business permit or anything else, that they feel that uh, they're getting, they're not getting response in a timely manner. What's the next step here, Ed, for your group, the committee? The next step for as far as we're concerned is going out and talking to folks uh, in, in, in our community uh, to talk about the fact that what is being proposed here, A, is improbable. B, a lot of questions have not been answered in terms of what would happen should uh, a city be created. And, and C, uh, you know, does it really address some of the core issues uh, that are being raised for why a city, uh, Buckhead, or rather Buckhead City, uh, should be created? Um, so, you know, I've, I've already talked to uh, some neighborhood association. Uh, so have other members of my group. Uh, we have uh, talked to various business groups as well. We plan on going out to any group that wants to talk to us and sort of laying out, here are the difficulties with this, with this proposal, and here's a better way. Here's how we can unite with the rest of the city of Atlanta residents and, and fix the very legitimate concerns that we And then I'm curious, exist. because you all have city council represent, representation. Is Has that not been... Has that not worked? You know, we have some good city council representation. Uh, you know, I, I know these folks and I know that they share a lot of the concerns and they're down at the city all fighting for it too. Uh, but, you know, some of it uh, starts at the top with the mayor and the, and, and the president administration. Uh, she is elected not to run for re-election. We've got multiple candidates now uh, asking for our vote and we want them to come into Buckhead and we want them to answer to our concerns and to answer to the concerns that we know exist throughout the city of Atlanta. We don't want this to be a campaign topic. We want the issues of crime, quality services, uh, zoning, and, and other uh, and business uh, development to be the issues that these candidates talk about that will uh, impact the quality of life for all of our uh, residents of the city. Well, and Ed, we should note that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are in the law firm with one of the candidates, Sharon Gag, is that correct? Yeah. I am. She's a good friend, uh, but she's going to need to earn uh, the folks' uh, uh, vote uh, throughout this city. And I think that she'd make a good mayor. I think that there are some other folks in this race who would make a good mayor as well. I want her and everyone else in this race uh, to uh, to answer uh, the concerns of our city um, and uh, and may the best candidate win. Former longtime state representative Ed Lindsay, co-founder of the Committee for United Atlanta, who's opposed to the Buckhead cityhood, cityhood movement. Good talking to you again, sir. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. If there is one place folks are surely glad is on the way back to normal, it's houses of worship. Whether Saturday or Sunday, churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, and spiritual sanctuaries all had to shutter last year well, due to the pandemic. Virtual and even drive-up services were the alternatives. That's all changing now, but there are still precautions. And joining me now is Bishop Robert Wright, 10th and current Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese. He's been on this program so many times. And who knew when this day would come, we're now discussing returning to church amid the pandemic and the new guidelines for worship services. Bishop Wright, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, I'm a fan. I'm always glad to be with you. Thank you. So as I said, it, it's hard to believe right now that given everything we've talked about last year, that here we are having this conversation in June of 2021 about returning to worship services. Did, did you think we'd get here so soon? Uh, you know, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Uh, we, we wanted to use science as a factor in our determinations, right? You know, faith and, and science are siblings, Dr. King said. So we, we wanted to stand at the intersection of faith uh, and of science and make the best decisions we could make. I mean, it's not just about worshiping. It's, it's, it's also about how we take care of neighbor, how we take care of one another. And so I'm so glad that we are here now. And we've moved from 
mandating certain protocols now to advising. So we moved to an advisory role and it's, it's been great to see people come back, but it, it was a really difficult 14 months for us. Although faith leaders such as yourself, y'all had no choice but to shift, not only how you were going to continue with worship services because they were altered, but your daily pastoral duties. And Bishop Wright, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but how did you get through this personally these last 14 months? Yeah, I, well, I, I tell you, you know, one of the one of the blessings of a major disruption like this is, is that it forces you down into what do you really believe? I mean, when you burn away all the shine, wh- what is the meat and potatoes, if, if you will? And so I, I'm so glad that even even I, as someone who's been an ordained person for a long time, you know, rediscovered uh, various aspects of our faith. And so one of the things that really buoyed me, lifted me, was the real sense of grace uh, and grace in the form of faith is a gift, right? And so we minister out of this gift. Uh, People give and share their gift with us and it lifts us all. And so that's how I got through it. I got through it in talking to a lot of smart people, a lot of faithful people, talking to people sort of broadly across the country about how they were making their way through it. And so, you know, I would say I was able to do this with a lot of people, a lot of partners walking, uh, walking these last uh, series of months. When you found out the news from the CDC with the new guidelines for fully vaccinated people, can you take me through that moment? Oh, yeah, it was it was it was actually more complicated than a lot of people think. You know, some people felt like, okay, here we are. You know, the chains have fallen off. You know, here we go. We're marching straight straight ahead. But but for us, that wasn't exactly true because, you know, we don't want to just cater only to a certain segment of the population, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this spirituality, this, you know, whether we're talking about Judaism, Islam, or Christianity, or or many of the other great religions, it's about all, it's about the commonwealth, it's about the common good. And so what we try to do is to remind people that for those of us who are strong, for those of us who are not immunodeficient, for those of us who have the luxury of going out and getting vaccination, vaccine, vaccinated, et cetera, you know, how do we use our strength now until many of the rest of the community can, can catch up? And so that was probably the hardest piece is that mm-hmm. inviting people to say, hey, we're not out of the woods yet. It's not all yet. Let's, let's, let's temper ourselves a little bit till more of the community can catch up. But I, I have to say, I'm by and large proud of a lot of people who decided that that's exactly what we're going to do. But it was a, it was some complicated and some heated conversations with some people because uh, some people think that, you know, even in houses of worship, that it's just about individual liberties, mm-hmm. right? And, and I- individual liberties are great and I'm for them. I'm a very proud American, wore the uniform, served this country. But when we're talking about faith, we're talking about using our strength to serve the weakest and the most vulnerable uh, and so, uh, well, we're, we've moved from there and, and we're moving on and, and people are adapting and adopting. So new practices. So we're happy about it now. But it was difficult. And prior to that, because Sunday services had yet to return in person, correct? Yeah, well, we were outside. We got outside pretty soon. The CDC allowed for us to get outside. So we got outside. And a lot of people actually, Rose, discovered this new dimension. There was a sweetness to being outside and worshiping early in the morning. And so people enjoy that. And so a lot of congregations, we have 117 congregations all mm-hmm. over middle North Georgia. And so a lot of congregations have discovered being outside, you know, and the beauty of all that. And I would say also on the funnier side of things, uh, through COVID, a lot of the average sermon got shorter, right? <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of members didn't mind that either, you know? Let me ask you this, Bishop, what guidance right now are Episcopal leaders? What are you all, what guidance are you now giving to your churches. Yeah. So one of the things that we have done, I think that's really important is that we've given back agency, right? We've given back the agency to the congregations and, but we've given them a sort of a, a, a great advisory resource. We, we have used uh, public health professionals who are members of our congregation at the highest level who have helped us sort of find our way through. Uh, but we wanted to give back some of the agency to local congregations, because as you can imagine, 56 and a half counties, lots of different measurements there. Mm-hmm. And so wanted to give that back to them so they could have local uh, local authority. But we are continuing to urge masks. We are continuing every to invite every congregation uh, to launch a, a vaccination campaign. Right. Really lean into this thing. And, and not only that, but, you know, in the most vulnerable in their community, whether they're members of the church or not, uh, to see if they can advocate 
for some people, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing in some places, even Southwest Atlanta, that uh, there are mobile uh, vaccination sites. People are, are bringing vaccines uh, to uh, elderly members and other members. And so we're, we're excited about that. We're encouraging that. So, but it's gotta be about more than just us, right? Well, the governor and the State Department of Public Health officials are now leaning into local communities to help encourage folks, bring awareness, get them the information that they need because they feel this is a, a trust issue now in terms of why folks may not be getting vaccinated. You see the role of, the, of faith leaders in the faith community now playing a, a pivotal role because Georgia's vaccination rate is still just maybe over 32%, right around 33%. Compared to other states, Bishop, that's, that's extremely low. 47 out of 50 rows, 47 out of 50. Alabama and Mississippi keep us from being on the bottom. That's it. At one time earlier on, we were on the bottom. So yeah, do I see a role for faith leaders of every stripe? Absolutely. Because I think what we do in a best case scenario, faith communities is we can commend trust, right? Mm -hmm. But, it, but, you know, we have to, we have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, the, how fast we got the vaccine and some of the, how it was politicized early on has really sort of eroded some people's trust. And I'm hoping some of that's coming back. I hope the president is right. That we'll have, you know, a great percentage nationally by the 4th of July. The voice you hear is Bishop Robert Wright, 10th and current Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese. And we're discussing returning to church services amid the pandemic and the new guidelines for worship services. You mentioned that you wanted to leave it up to each congregation, or as you put it, uh, give them agency, because what yep. works in Fulton may not work in right. Early County or Blue Ridge or what have you. That's right. But are you all suggesting only allowing fully vaccinated folks in for service and, and other in-person church events or... Not at all. No. I mean, you know, uh, again, for us, it's all right. We're trying to find a way for all to come back, for all to be in fellowship, for all to worship. So, no, we've asked people who even have a high percentage of vaccinations to wear masks, to welcome people back. And so, yeah, I mean, this is, again, where we have to say, you know, are we for all of us? Right. Or do we want to set up a two tiered uh, system? And we don't want to do that. So, yeah, people are working that out. And Bishop, what about clergy and staff? What guidance are you giving regarding getting vaccinated? Absolutely. I've been crystal clear. We had a clergy meeting this morning, in fact, over Zoom. I've been crystal clear. Let's get out and get vaccinated because, I mean, you know, you are leading. You are an example, right? I mean, and what we want to do is we want to commend the very best. And I think the very best for the country, for the state right now is more people getting you know, vaccinated and for us to be able to sort of grab back some of those freedoms that we have long missed, uh, not the least of which is just being in closer fellowship with one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bishop, I'm curious, are there some traditional religious affiliated practices and protocols that will no longer take place, particularly in your diocese because of COVID-19? I mean, taking communion and yeah. offering peace to your fellow parishioner, will all that go away? No, it, it'll never go away, Rose. I mean, it, it may get sort of maybe inhibited a bit for a while until the trust comes back, until the, the percentage of folks uh, being vaccinated goes up. But we're still going to keep that going because that is so much of what worship is. Worship is just, you know, you know, not only just us and God, but it's us and one another. And so we have to figure that out. Uh, the only protocol that we have in place that we have barred is that communion cup for us in our tradition is bread and wine. So for obvious reasons, we've sort of kept the, we've pushed the wine to the side for right now and communion is just bread. Uh, but people are exchanging the peace. I mean, we're fist bumping and elbow bumping and all that sort of stuff. And we're on our way back because for some of us, uh, that means so much. I mean, it's the incarnation of God's love in one another. And so that's coming back, but you know, we're, we're treading carefully. And finally, Bishop, have you either written preach, reflected to yourself and connecting this moment. And, and by the way, we're all still in a pandemic, but yeah. um, have you made some correlation to all this with the spiritual religious lesson or testament at all? Yeah, I think I have. I, I think that one of the exciting uh, pieces about scripture, our holy books, is, is that they're timeless, right? I mean, so what we've just gone through in America and globally, in fact, is, is uh, we've been disrupted. And what that does is it shakes us down to our core. And what we hope is, is that uh, what we want after that is not simply just sort of get back to cruising altitude, but we want to be refined by that. We want our fellowship and our compassion to be refined by that. So I've been talking in terms of a second win, Rose. This is a second win for 
for our nation. This is a second win for worshiping communities. I hope this is a second win for individuals and families. Uh, a lot of us have appreciated families uh, to another level now. Right. I'm seeing again and again on Facebook and across social media how people have longed to hug grandma or long to be in the presence of family. I'm hoping that what this has done is shaken loose for us about what is really valuable. You know, prior to this, we were running hither and yon, doing lots of things, didn't have very much time for the things that matter. Hopefully, COVID has disrupted some of that and helps us see what is really valuable. And what is really valuable is one another, our fellowship with one another, our relationship to a higher power, our God, and our relationship to nature. That's exciting, too. People are going outside in interesting ways, celebrating outside in interesting ways. REI and camping stores, and they can't, they can't make their, the businesses just hand over fist. And so maybe we're getting outside and want to see the genius of God in nature again. You know, what's interesting, and I don't know if I'm breaking protocols of journalists. Yeah. I was out walking this past weekend with a friend. And I saw a butterfly and I hadn't seen a <laughs> butterfly in a long time. I know butterflies exist. And I thought, yeah. well, maybe I just hadn't been paying attention. But I was out on this nice long walk in the woods and came across this butterfly. And I just kind of, I, I returned to a 10-year-old kid like, oh, yep. butterfly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping that that's what's happened, too, is our sense of awe and wonder has has increased. Right. I mean, I, I live in a neighborhood. We go walk and I go walk with my wife and there's red birds all over the place. We get to see the occasional hawk or owl or whatever. And, you know, not to sound you know corny, but what it really does is it, it just it situates you in this wonderful nature. It situates you and, you and you and you realize that we're part of something bigger. And so even for our agnostics and our atheists, even that is a blessing to be situated in this overarching sort of beautiful cosmos. You know, Albert Einstein said that, uh, the, you know, the universe has a benevolent mind. Mm -hmm. And so even if you don't sort of buy all the religious talk of whatever, at least you can do that. You can realize that this sort of this this universe we live in is tilted to good. Uh, and so we have to remember that when we see the headlines day to day. And who doesn't love butterflies? I mean, come on. <laughs> exactly right. Bishop Robert Wright, 10th and current Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese. Bishop Wright, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you again. Always, Rose. Good to be with you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.